so this has got to be the most <laughs> um, perverse opening to a series ever. I'm stood in, uh, I was going to say, oh, these people have been lovely to me, so I don't want to, but I was going to say a fairly nondescript huge hall in a convention centre here in Columbia, South Carolina. They're setting up for what looks to be a, a t-shirt sales convention. I can see a sign that says t-shirt station grade six and seven. Um, but the reason I'm here is because back in January 2008, this is the room in which Barack Obama gave his victory speech after the South Carolina primary. And it was hugely important not only in that election after he'd won Iowa and then lost in New Hampshire and came down here to South Carolina, it's hugely important not only to uh, the South and, and, and also to the, separately to the black community in terms of both of their ability to get behind his candidacy. But it's hugely important to me personally because I remember at that time I was kind of only a year out of university. I was working one of my first real jobs. It was a part-time job up in the north of England. Uh, it was precarious. I was away from London where my home was. I wasn't very happy. But I'd always been interested in UX politics. I've always wanted to be involved in it. I've always wanted to understand it more. And I was working late one night, well into the early hours of the morning, and I was following the election coverage results. And Obama came on and gave his South Carolina victory speech. And it was just the cadence, the rhythm, the, 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 the hope in it, the thought, the depth. It was, it was just one of the most phenomenal moving things I'd ever heard. I remember he closed. I remember the final couple of paragraphs of it were, um, and so as we leave this great state with a new wind at our backs, we take this journey across a country we love. And as we leave this great state with a new wind at our backs, and we take this journey across this great country, a country we love with the message we've carried from the plains of Iowa to the hills of New Hampshire, from the Nevada desert to the South Carolina coast. The same message we had when we were up and when we were down, that out of many, we are one, that while we breathe, we will hope and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and fear and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of the American people in three simple words. Yes, we can. Thank you, South Carolina. I love you. There's another line in the, in the um, speech as well that spoke about an elderly lady who sent him a contribution, a, a, a postal check for three dollars and one cent and how you know don't tell her that change isn't possible that woman knows change is possible and I always saw a great synergy with that in my wanting to come over and, and campaign and learn more about it as well because it wasn't a very easy time at that point for my family uh, it was a difficult time we didn't have a huge amount of money as well but my mum gave me the the airfare to come over and she'd never heard of Barack Obama nobody had really heard of Barack Obama at that point let alone you know, somebody who lived in the south of England and wasn't even really affected by the election, but she had real faith in me. She said, if this is what you believe in and want to do, then, then go and, and do it and I'll give you what I can. And so she did. She kind of wrote her own postal order for, for her equivalent of $3.01. And I came over and I campaigned for him in, in uh, Boston and in Somerville and in Cambridge over Super Tuesday and then down in, in Washington, D.C. in the Potomac primaries. And it was a real starting point for me. It was a real launch pad. It gave me a belief that 
that things could be different and that you could be an agent within it and things would change. There are those who will tell, who will continue to tell us that we can't do this, that we can't have what we're looking for, that we can't have what we want, that we're peddling false hopes. But here's what I know. I know that when people say we can't overcome all the big money and influence in Washington, I think of that elderly woman who sent me a contribution the other day, an envelope that had a money order for $3.01, along with a verse of scripture tucked inside the envelope. So don't tell us change isn't possible. That woman knows change is possible. When I hear the cynical talk that blacks and whites and Latinos can't join together and work together, I'm reminded of the Latino brothers and sisters I organized with and stood with and fought with side by side for jobs and justice on the streets of Chicago. So don't tell us change can't happen. When I hear that we'll never overcome the racial divide in our politics. I think about that Republican woman who used to work for Strom Thurmond, who's now devoted to educating inner-city children, and who went out into the streets of South Carolina and knocked on doors for this campaign. Don't tell me we can't change. Yes, we can. Yes, we can change. Yes, we can. That was embarrassingly 12 years ago now. But what has stayed with me ever since is my utter conviction that there is just a fascinating, fascinating story to be told about how you become president of the United States. And British people kind of tune into it occasionally every four years and hear little snippets about places like Iowa and New Hampshire, but don't necessarily know why these things are so important along the way. So this is my attempt to tell that story. Ten episodes, each one pulling out the individual different important parts about how you become President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. So hello and welcome to episode one. My name's Dave Smith. This episode today is called Thinking About Thinking About It. It's about everything you have to do before you announce that you're going to run for president. So let's start at the very beginning, shall we? And the very beginning is undoubtedly the fact that I don't know enough about this and I'm not articulate enough to be able to tell the story all by myself. But fortunately, I bumped into somebody who probably, probably could. My name is Tim Stanley and I'm a historian and columnist for the Daily Telegraph. Now, I actually have it on good authority that Tim is from Sevenoaks, and yet despite that, he's even gone as far as to write biographies about people like Pat Buchanan, who was a relatively low-key presidential candidate back in the early 90s. So I started just by asking him, you know, you love this stuff like me. What is it about American presidential elections, which is just so alluring? US presidential politics is about principles and personality. 
And it brings those two things together. The good candidates manage to physically embody the principles that they are running on. In European systems, which tend to be parliamentary, there's a separation between the two, and the private life is quite private. By contrast, if you think about Barack Obama, his promise of change in 2008 is embodied in the fact that he is America's first black candidate. Likewise, Donald Trump in 2016, his promise to shake up the system is embodied in the fact that he is a loudmouth businessman who says the first thing that comes into his head. So for those of us who are really interested in the practice of politics, then the detail of how you become president, but also the personality involved and how that personality comes to articulate ideas and, and actually embody ideas, that makes it something irresistible. I was fascinated by his take on this. My next two questions were pretty obvious ones. One, how do you even begin to plan for something like running for president of the United States? And two, so who are these nutters who think that they're up to the job of being what is, you know, arguably but probably the most powerful job in the world? Almost everyone who goes to Congress probably imagines that they can be president someday. Those who think about it very seriously have got to plan long in advance. They've got to be thinking about machinery. They've got to be thinking about money. So you're likely to be thinking about running for president four to eight years ahead of when you would actually do it. The case of Donald Trump is an interesting one because a lot of people thought that his race, for instance, was spur of the moment because he seemed quite ill-prepared. He seemed to be making up policy as he went along. Actually, if you dug a little bit deeper, that was bravado and that was untrue. Donald Trump was talking about what he would do as a president from the 1980s and the 1990s. He was already kicking around ideas. And crucially, in 2012, he first of all threw himself into uh, the controversy over Barack Obama's birth certificate. He, he really gave a second life to that. And he also floated the idea that he might run for the presidency. He was never going to do it in 2012. What he was doing was testing the waters. And once he had gone in and got out, and all of us wrote it off as an embarrassing flop, what he then did, which we didn't realize, is he asked pollsters and he asked experts what worked about what I said when I was thinking of running. And they came back to him and they said what really worked was the birth certificate, immigration, and everything you had to say about jobs. So again, he was thinking four years in advance of when he would run. That's when he was testing the waters. And he actually took away from that experience, controversial though it was, that there was a group of people out there whose votes he could win, and it might be large enough to get him the Republican nomination. So that gives you a sense of the kind of advanced thinking that candidates will be going through. Um, to what extent then really do people have to kind of time it right? So if you were a Republican in the last cycle, you might have been thinking, we'll sit this one out, and then we'll have a bash at Hillary Clinton at the end of her first term when she might not be popular. And now, anyone who had been going through that thought process presumably is going to be out of an opportunity for a job that they wanted. Absolutely. Every candidate has to run through their heads this mathematical calculation based upon who is president right now. So if it's 2008 and Barack Obama has just won the presidency, a Democrat will look at him and think, well, he's going to run for his nomination again in four years' time. It'll be uncontested. There's no point in me running. He's easily going to get it. So you're thinking eight years in advance. Then again, if you're smart, you'll also be thinking in those eight years, the country will be sick of Democrats. So maybe 
Republicans will do well in that one. So maybe I need to think about 12 years in advance. But then again, if a Republican wins in eight years and does very well in those four years, they might get another eight years. So you might actually be planning your next run 16 years in advance. There are, on the other hand, some candidates who just simply run when there's an opportunity to run. And sometimes it's a mistake. Uh, I think a lot of the candidates who ran in 1988 probably now, in retrospect, recognize that the Republicans were always going to do well after Reagan because he had done such a good job of running the country, as far as many voters were concerned. By contrast, Bill Clinton really took a risk in 1992 when halfway through what should have been two terms for George H.W. Bush, Clinton thought, oh, what the hell, I'm going to go for it, and it paid off. But one reason why Bill Clinton managed to get the Democratic nomination was because several other, frankly, more experienced, perhaps even better Democrat nominees decided not to run because they calculated that George H.W. Bush would get another four years. So there's a mix of very canny, uh, clever mathematical calculation and balls involved. And sometimes those who just take a risk and get in, they they benefit from that. Balls in the strictly gender-neutral sense of the word, I'm sure. My next question. Sometimes people will run, won't they, with no intention, really, of becoming president, just to kind of run their flag up the mast or to, to raise a certain political issue or to represent a particular wing of the party? Absolutely. The field for president seems to get larger with every decade. And increasingly there are candidates who, one senses, don't think they're going to go all the way. But they're either auditioning to become a vice president, or they are there to push a particular issue. And those people could have a long-term impact that can become disassociated with their name. I think back to 2008, I think it was, when there was a candidate called Tom Tancredo who ran in the Republican primaries and dropped out even, I think, before Iowa, even before the voting properly began. And he ran on immigration. And all he did in that race, in every debate, was talk about immigration, immigration, immigration. And everyone thought it was a bit of a joke, but it definitely had an impact and it definitely stuck with the Republicans. Other people will run, as I say, because they want to get noticed. And sometimes they can accidentally do quite well and end up staying in much longer than they expected to. Uh, but normally, if that kind of candidate is not serious or is too young or inexperienced, they drop out very, very early. I wouldn't, for instance, Marco Rubio. I, I think Marco Rubio genuinely thought in 2016 he could go all the way. But it was quickly exposed in the debates that he did not have the experience and the intellectual heft to go all the way and should have dropped out a lot earlier than he did. But had it not been Trump at the top of the ticket, any other person who got the nomination in 2016 almost certainly would have picked Marco Rubio to be their, their running mate. My theory is that um, the likes of Trump and even Obama, um, certainly, and possibly even Bill Clinton, could never rise to the top of the parliamentary system. They wouldn't become leader of the parliamentary party and become prime minister in that way. Absolutely not, no. There have always in American history been politicians who have reflected that they wish they were a British politician because they think they could have become a prime minister in a way that they couldn't become president. And I, I think there's a good reason for that, which is that when a prime minister rises to the top, even though they are elected by the party members, it's true, they have to go through a process of filtering. It's always brought down to, in the Tory case, to two candidates. So they have to win the support of their MPs. And therefore, uh, having a degree of clout within the parliamentary party is still critical to becoming leader of the party and a prime minister. By contrast, in the American system, you can actually bypass all of that. 
Donald Trump not even served an elected office. Barack Obama had only been in the Senate for, I think, four years when he became nominated as the Democrat uh, candidate in 2008. So the presidential system allows you to bypass your party. It allows you to get around your party's establishment. That is actually problematic because once you have won the support of the people, you then have to govern with Congress, which a lot of candidates forget. They become overcome with the mystical, magical relationship between them and the ordinary voter. And once they enter the White House, they discover they actually have to negotiate with and navigate all these lobbyists and special interests within Congress. A great example of that was Jimmy Carter, who in 1976 had only done, I think, one term as governor of Georgia, and to everyone's surprise, jumped over the heads of many experienced Democrat politicians to become the Democrat nominee and then president. When he entered the White House, he just didn't know how to handle Congress at all. And the same is happening now with Donald Trump. But before we get too involved in talking about Donald Trump and this coming election cycle, here in episode one, perhaps it's a good time to take a step back and look at some of the history of the American presidency, about how the office came about and how it's evolved over time. In order to do that and draw some comparisons to the British system, I went to speak to one of the UK's leading experts on the office of the president. My name is Ewan Morgan. Uh, I'm a professor of US studies. I'm Commonwealth Fund Professor of American History at University College London. I started by asking Professor Morgan, why is the presidency just such an important focal point within the entirety of US politics? And has it always been like that? Well, first of all, the president is the focal point of the American political system and certainly has been since 1933, only occasionally before 1933 when the president was really subordinate to Congress. But we live in a modern era in which uh, uh, the presidency, to uh, quote John F. Kennedy, is the vortex of the political system. And my belief is uh, that in order to understand America and American politics, you have to understand the presidency, both in terms of its powers, possibilities, and very importantly, limitations. Why do you say 1933 is a time where it changed? 1933 uh, brought uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt to power. Um, there had been strong presidents uh, at the start of the 20th century, uh, most evidently Theodore Roosevelt, who can claim to be the father of the modern presidency, and Woodrow Wilson. But really, uh, this was something of a false start. It was when Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, became president in the depth of the Depression uh, that uh, he sees on the possibility of the president uh, to uh, bring about uh, wide-ranging policies in an effort to bring America out of the Great Depression. So it wasn't always the case then that the American president was supposed to be front and centre of their political system. In fact, if you go back as far as the 1770s and the 1780s following the Declaration of Independence and when the country was in its infancy, this was far from the case. Professor Morgan again. Well, if you look at the American Constitution, the first article is about Congress. Uh, which uh, implies that the founders regarded the legislature as being the key branch of government. Uh, in particular, strangely, it may seem to us, uh, the House of Representatives, which was directly elected. The Senate was to be the representative of the states. And the founders weren't quite sure about the presidency itself. Uh, 
they'd experimented with a purely legislative form of government in the 1780s under the Articles of Confederation, and that hadn't worked uh, very well. And so there was a recognition of a need for a chief executive, but the founders were very keen uh, that the chief executive should not become the equivalent of a king or um, uh, that uh, the president should not become what we today call the imperial president. So if you look at the constitution, the powers of the president are very vague. Uh, they say very little about uh, uh, what he can do. The most explicit grant powers to a president uh, are, first of all, the responsibility to make sure that the laws are administered the president uh, is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Uh, the key power in modern times, one would argue, the commander-in-chief power, and uh, also the power to appoint. Indeed, the power of patronage, the ability to appoint people to other powerful positions within political office, is incredibly important within any power structure and how it works. And here we're referring to how the president appoints all of his cabinet, so the Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defence, as well as his ability to appoint ambassadors across the globe. But also, very important and quite crucial recently, his ability to nominate Supreme Court justices, all of which, however, has to be ratified by the Senate. So I wanted to get right back to the formation of the office and talk about how it came into being and how it's evolved. In order to do that, we have to start with the first ever president of the United States, General George Washington, who is a legend now within American political history. So I started by asking Professor Morgan, was it true that George Washington in many ways didn't really want the job of president and was reluctant to take it on and practically had to be begged to become the first ever president? To an extent that is true, uh, but um, uh, Washington responded to the call of duty and uh, uh, his selection was very important because there was considerable debate and dispute amongst the delegates at the Philadelphia Convention where the 1787 Constitution was drafted as to whether to have a president or not. But uh, the knowledge that uh, George Washington would uh, uh, accept uh, nomination as uh, the uh, first president reassured everybody because Washington was the uh, man who had led America's armies to victory in the War of Independence. Uh, he could have become king. Uh, army officers offered him the crown uh, of uh, uh, the United States in 1782, but he turned them down saying, we are a republic. So, uh, let's say Washington had immense trust, and uh, even though by the end of his presidency uh, a party system had emerged uh, between the Federalists and the Republicans, uh, nevertheless uh, Washington had done enough to establish the legitimacy of the institution, and for that reason, uh, in the uh, polls that are regularly conducted uh, of the greatest American presidents and the average ones and the worst, George Washington is, I would say, invariably in the top three. And the top three are, no surprises here, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin D. Roosevelt and uh, George Washington. So a brief word here quickly about General George Washington, who is widely regarded to be the first ever president of the United States, because I don't really think a podcast like this can, can start anywhere else. But perhaps the first thing to say is, arguably, he wasn't the first ever president. The American Congress was established before the end of the Revolutionary War uh, as a rival power base to British rule, and that elected a role within it called president. 
But that wasn't really a president in a traditional sense. He didn't have any real executive powers. So a lot of people see Washington's election in 1788, 1789 as the first ever election of an actual president. And the fascinating thing about this was when Washington arrived at his inauguration, which was in New York City rather than Washington, D.C., because that didn't exist. He had to create that. Nothing really existed. No offices of state, no bureaucracy around the presidency. The White House wasn't there as a, as a centre for, for, for government. So all of this was created by George Washington, in addition to his republicanism, which established the office as separate to a kingship and slowly helped create a party system whereby you could have a democratic transition of power, which we see today. And one other thing that I find absolutely fascinating about it is that when he was called and asked to become the first president, Washington reluctantly accepted. And he certainly didn't do any campaigning for the office at all. He refused to give any speeches. He certainly didn't cross the country looking for votes. In fact, he deemed it beneath the office of the presidency to campaign. But yet he was still um, elected uh, unopposed, effectively, and certainly unanimously in terms of the Electoral College. So what's incredible is where you have the election of 1788-89 operating like that, you cut to 2016 where approximately $2.6 billion was spent on trying to get elected. And you can see how far not only the personalities, but the office and the money has come. So I asked Professor Morgan, how did we go from this state of the office of president being so revered and people effectively being called from their plough to a situation now whereby people campaign for years and years and years and spend billions of dollars. How was it that this system of campaigning for the presidency came about? Well, the presidents uh, uh, have gone through various phases in terms of campaigning. Uh, um, for much of the uh, 19th century, presidents did not campaign as we know it today. Uh, uh, for example, the last president of the 19th century, uh, uh, William McKinley, uh, did not go about the country, even though there was a possibility of doing so on trains, but he uh, stood in the uh, uh, front porch of his house in Canton, Ohio, and uh, gave speeches which were attended by journalists and uh, others passing through. Uh, but uh, things changed with the coming of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, realised the power of the media, uh, the uh, uh, cheap newspapers were coming into being. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was the first American president to appreciate the importance of the new moving pictures and uh, he made himself news. And thereafter, every president has sought to emulate him. John F. Kennedy was the first television president. And uh, by the 1980s, uh, many political scientists believe that the United States was, uh, and its presidency was locked into a permanent campaign. That it wasn't simply a campaign to uh, win office, it was also a campaign to for public approval during your tenure and to win support for the policies you wanted to promote. So my last question for Professor Morgan before we leave the history lesson behind was how has this incredibly and uniquely American mix of frontierism and democracy and money which we which we call the primary season whereby individuals try and get the nomination of their party and then move on to the general election how has this whole process of the campaign come about? Until 1968 Primaries were relatively unimportant in 
candidate selection. Uh, usually candidates were chosen uh, as a result of uh, deals uh, conducted by um, the party establishment, interest groups uh, who uh, supported the party and cont contested a small number of primaries in order to demonstrate that they had uh, uh, popular appeal. For example, when John F. Kennedy ran for president in 1960, most of his delegates were drawn from uh, state conventions uh, which were controlled by the state Democratic Party. But he had to go and demonstrate that he had appeal as the first, uh, sorry, the second uh, Catholic uh, Democratic candidate. The first in 1928, Alfred E. Smith had bombed in the South. The South, uh, you know, the, the bastion of the old Democratic Party wasn't having a uh, papist uh, as its representative and uh, many of them did something they'd never done before. Many white Southern voters have voted Republican in 28. 32 years later, John F. Kennedy, another Catholic, has to prove that he can win in the South and he chooses West Virginia, one of the most Protestant states in the Union, uh, as his testing round. And he wins West Virginia. It's often said that his father bought every vote that was cast for him in what was then a very poor state. But regardless of that, Kennedy won and he was on his way. 1968 is the game changer because in 1968, uh, uh, this is the time of the Vietnam War, inner city. Uh, ghetto disturbances, uh, uh, countercultures in full flow, America appears to be cracking up. Johnson, Lyndon B. Johnson, who could have had a second term in office, a second elected term in office, decides he is not going to run, that he is going to focus on trying to negotiate peace with the uh, North Vietnamese. So this leaves the, the door open for uh, new challenges to emerge and uh, Robert Kennedy runs, uh, Eugene McCarthy runs and they contest the primaries. Uh, Kennedy of course is killed on the uh, night that he wins the California primary but even if Kennedy had survived he would not have been the candidate in all likelihood even though he had racked up a lot of primary victories Vice President Hubert Humphrey had racked up delegates from these state conventions. And of course, when Humphrey was nominated in the most divisive convention in American history, uh, with riots going on outside, uh, the Democrats decided they were going to change, that they were going to go over to a system where there was more popular involvement in the selection of uh, presidential candidates. Uh, once the Democrats had done that, the Republicans had to follow suit to avoid charges of being boss controlled. So what happened was that both main political parties surrendered one of the most important powers of party. And that was to surrender the power to determine who was leader. Now, you might say, well, opening it out to the democratic process is a good thing, but of course you end up it's a beauty contest, who has more money, um, you are open to mavericks, certain, uh, for example, uh, Donald Trump, uh, um, do you get the best candidates? Uh, um, all of these questions raised uh, uh, about the primary system, but it's here to stay, and since um, 
since 1972, running for president has been a huge job. Uh, you can't, in, as in the old days, say, let's say 12 months before the election, oh, I think I'll put my hat in the ring. You've got to be in the ring for two years. So everybody I've spoken to so far seems to agree that if you're serious about running for president of the United States, then you need to be looking at this years and years in advance and laying the groundwork. But I wanted to get into the actual specificities of what you have to do before you announce that you're going to run. First and foremost, there's some constitutional requirements. The Constitution actually states who can and can't run for president. It's a relatively low bar, so you've got to be 35 years old, and you've got to be what's called a natural-born citizen of the United States, which is interesting in some cases because some people, like, say, John McCain, was actually born overseas. He was born in the Panama region because his dad was in the military, but that was deemed to be American territory at the time, so that was okay. So as long as you get through that and you've got some sort of platform to run from, although increasingly not necessarily much of one, then you're ready to lay the groundwork for the pregame. And the pregame tends to look something like this. First and foremost, you deny to everybody, everybody who will listen, every TV show you can get on, every journalist who will turn their pen to the words that you say, that you've ever got any intention of running for president. You deny it as much as you possibly can in the hope that actually sometime soon it will make you sound slightly presidential and people will start saying, oh, well, why isn't that person running for president? And actually they might be, might be quite good. And after a small amount of time of doing that, what you then do is you leak to the press the idea that you're being quote-unquote encouraged to run for president. Now, the people encouraging you to run for president are invariably yourself, uh, your partner, the staff who work for you, and the sources close to the presidential candidate, which are quoted in the newspapers saying that you're being encouraged to run, are frequently the presidential candidate themselves. So what you do is you go back out and you deny again to everybody who will possibly listen, even louder this time, you've got any intention of running before letting slip maybe a couple of months later that you're mm, considering running for president. You continue to consider running for president for another couple of months until you change it slightly and now you say, well, I'm seriously considering running for president. Seriously running for pre considering running for president slowly changes into exploring the possibility of running for president and eventually you can get to a stage where you can say, well, do you know what, I'm actively laying the groundwork to run for president. And then, beyond all this, what you can finally do is you can announce the date on which you might announce the date where you might announce whether or not you're going to run. And then there's the money. All the way through this, you're trying to raise money. You're setting up a presidential exploratory committee. You're setting up political action committees. You're calling everybody who you've ever met, asking for money towards the eventual presidential effort you're going to put forward. You try and set up some front groups who can put up adverts saying that you potentially should run and talking about the issues which are important to you. Money is a huge part of the presidential election and who gets chosen both to be the candidate for the parties and in the end in the general election in terms of choosing who gets to be president. But we'll get on to that later on in a different episode. But what I'm trying to get on to say here, really, I suppose, is that the lesson from this first episode is that when you're running for president of the United States, actually announcing that you're running for president of the United States is the very last thing that you do. But for all the talk and all the analysis and everybody's different opinion, I felt we just couldn't really finish this first episode without hearing from somebody who'd at least, well, like, had a decent crack at it. Now, unsurprisingly, they're quite difficult to get hold of, especially anyone who's had any vague degree of success. And for someone like myself, who's never done a podcast before and was desperately trying to get hold of people, unsurprisingly, nobody got back to me. And then something happened. In a mark of the real decency that just came to characterise his candidature and obviously also his later life, 
I wrote a letter to somebody who very foolishly once listed their address in the Boston Globe newspaper. I didn't expect anything, I never thought I'd hear back from them. And then six months later, out of the blue, this happened. Hi. Hi, Governor Dave Smith again. I'm pleased to say it's all working very well. So I know what you're thinking. I might just about have managed to get hold of some no-hoper who once threw their hat into the ring in Iowa and pulled out before it got interesting and how the hell are they going to inform every episode of this podcast? Well, sadly, none of them were able to get back to me. But somebody else did. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce... I'm Mike Dukakis. I was the governor of Massachusetts and I was the Democratic nominee for the presidency in 1988. So I'm incredibly pleased to say that Mike's amazing stories about how he was in Iowa and then in New Hampshire and how he chose his vice president and what it was like debating George H.W. Bush and all of that are going to feature throughout the entire series. But we started with the most important of questions. Can you tell me about the moment when you actually decided to run for president? Well, it was kind of interesting, Dave. I had never, ever thought of running for the presidency. Um, I had been re-elected by a very large margin to a third term as governor. Um, I'd kind of privately, I hadn't talked about this, but I'd probably decided my third, we don't have term limits in Massachusetts, my third term would probably be my last. And uh, I really had never given running for the presidency a thought until uh, the Iran-Contra scandal broke. Mm. And like a lot of other Americans, I was just appalled. I mean, you had the president and the vice president lying to the Congress. You had some guy in the basement of the White House shredding documents. Um, you had uh, an administration deliberately breaking the law. Um, and the whole thing was just appalling. And I just, you know, like, like an awful lot of people in this country, I just said, this is, this is unacceptable, but I wanted, um, and this was kind of in the summer of 86 when I was running for election the third time for the fourth time, actually, but winning for the third time. And, um, I just kind of, and there were a number of people coming to me and saying, you got to take a look at it and this, that, and the other thing, but I really wasn't interested. So campaigned hard, won with about 70% of the vote. And then I said to folks who were coming to me, look, I just want to enjoy this victory. I want to have a good, good transition to a third term. Uh, you know, it's 10 to 1 against running. I mean, I'm I don't have any great interest in this, though I was very concerned, obviously, about what was going on in the White House. Um, but I said, after the first of the year, I'll take a few months uh, and and just spend some time talking to people. Uh, does this make sense? Can I do the job? I mean, it's kind of an important one. So I spent January, February, and March out talking to people and uh, tried to... When you say people like, talking to voters or talking to your friends no, in the no, no, party? No, 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 talking to folks whose, whose judgment I respected and who uh, I thought would give me the straight scoop here. You know, I didn't want to hear a lot of stuff about, oh, yeah, you're a great guy and all that kind of thing. I mean, mm. I wanted to get this thing, I mean, get get informed opinion from, opinions from people whose judgment I respected and who I thought would be be tough and, and, uh, and wouldn't shilly-shally around. And after going through that part, then, of course, I, I, I was very concerned about my family. I mean, there's nothing more important to me than, than them. Uh, you know, I'm married to a great woman. I've got three great kids. And if even one of them if it said, we don't want you to do this, I wouldn't have done it. And I did have, fortunately, all of our kids had graduated from high school. And I can tell you, if I had had a single child who was still in high school, I wouldn't have done it. 
which is not a knock at the folks that do it. And I mean, I think the the uh, Obamas, for example, have done an extraordinary job bringing up their kids and especially guiding them through eight years in the White House. But I, I never would have done that. But fortunately, our youngest by that time was out of high school, was in college, and, uh, and the others were older than she was. So, and I just sat down and said, is, is this something you think I ought to do? Uh, I've got two very attractive daughters, and I said, you'll never go out another date without a Secret Service guy for at least <laughs> the next four and maybe eight years. I mean, do you want, it, do you, do you want that? Interestingly enough, they were a lot more enthusiastic about it than I was. I remember one of my daughters looking across the table at me and saying, you know, very few people have this opportunity and, and you've got a real obligation to do it, if you, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, so they, they tended to be quite supportive. And, and that was very important to me. Um, you know, did I have what it took to do the job? I mean, it's kind of an important one, you know, and I think I was a pretty, pretty successful governor, but that's not being president of the United States. Anyway, for a variety of reasons and having gone through this process, I finally decided that, I'd take a shot at it, uh, although I said, you know, very publicly, this is a long shot. I was at about 1% of the polls, and um, and it's going to be a marathon, and we went to work. Where did you launch your campaign? Uh, in April of 87. Where, sorry? Where? In Boston, on Boston Common. In fact, it snowed the night before. My, my my dear mother was 85, still going strong, turned to a Greek friend of hers. They were on the common together. And she said uh, to her, to lipasma to, to who, which in Greek means uh, poor man's fertilizer. That's what a light snow is in Greece. <laughs> and uh, so it was in April. And then, um, and and began to put together an organization. And slowly but surely, we started making some progress. Making what he calls some progress is Mike Jakarkas's typically humble way of describing how he went from 1% in the polls and nearly no national name recognition to becoming the Democratic Party nominee and running in the general election in 1988. The very first step along that road was going over to the Midwest state of Iowa and competing there in the Iowa caucuses, which is the very first state to vote for who it wants to be the party's nominees. That's where we are next week in episode two of How to Become President of the United States. And from there, we fly across to New Hampshire and then down to South Carolina. So South Carolina is episode four, in which we're also going to look at something called Super Tuesday, which this year is happening on Tuesday, the 3rd of March 2020. And that's where 14 states vote at the same time with a huge number of delegates up for grabs. So invariably, by the end of Super Tuesday, people from all across the nation have voted and you tend to have a presumptive nominee. So come episode five, we're going to shift gear slightly and look at the specifics of their general election campaign. First, how do they choose their vice presidential candidates? How do you go from choosing someone like Joe Biden on the one hand to Sarah Palin on the other hand? Episode six is about the party conventions, which are a bit in a way kind of like large political party conferences here in the UK, but they only happen every four years. They happen in the summer and it's where the presidential candidates are announced formally to the nation for the first time. Are they still relevant? Are they still important? Is anybody still watching? Episode seven is about money and advertising. This is called the Pac-Men, and it's going to look at the history of political advertising and the role that it plays in the presidential elections. Before we get on to episode eight, which is one of my favorite ones, it's about the presidential debates and how you begin to even prepare for something as monumentous as that, which goes out worldwide and can still to this day even swing an election. 
And then it's the big one in episode nine, election day itself. We're going to look at the ground game, how the campaign's organised, how they get out the vote, what actually happens on the day itself, what candidates do during that time and what it must be like to be backstage watching all of this as you try and get any way you can to that crucial 270 electoral college votes. And then finally, in episode 10, we're going to look at the transition and the inauguration and everything that's happened since election day before eventually taking office until you get to that point in the following cold January where one person has won, one person has lost, and you have to stand alone on the steps of the Capitol in Washington in front of the entire world and utter those immortal words, so help me God. So I really hope you're going to join me for what should be a fun and interesting ride and well, you know, I say interesting, if you've got this far, at the very least, you know what you're letting yourself in for. So just to close, I want to answer one final question. And that is, why is it that both the Democrats and the Republicans choose their candidates via this bizarre and elongated cross-country bus tour that we're about to take? Well, to tee us up for the next episode, I thought I'd give the final word to Tim Stanley. A lot, a lot of people wonder why it is, first of all, Americans don't just all vote in one go. And secondly, why it is that those three somewhat obscure states get to pick first. But actually the process makes a lot of sense. It's three very different hurdles that test very different things about a candidate. The Iowa caucus is all about meeting everyone in the state and it's about phenomenal organization because on the day of the caucus you've got to get people out to chaperone people to go to the individual meetings to stand up and speak and to vote so that's a test of your ability to energize and excite locals and activists new hampshire is a test of your ability to win over a state which has a reputation for being fiercely independent um, within the republican market it tends to have a surprising number of working class voters and quite often candidates who stress economic issues can do quite well. Among Democrats, it, it often has quite a strong liberal middle class element because there are many people who have moved there from places like Massachusetts and New York. So it's about the ability to run around in a relatively small market and win votes among voters who are incredibly skeptical and are used to being lied to. Plus, it's just very, very cold. And that sounds like a silly thing, but actually navigating your way through snowdrifts and the ability to persevere is very important. And finally, the third hurdle, South Carolina, is a different test altogether, a much larger market. But crucially among Republicans, it tends to be quite a religious market. That's a lot about winning over the evangelical vote. Among Democrats, South Carolina is about winning the black vote. Um, and increasingly within Democratic primaries, uh, the African-American vote is really the thing that decides whether a candidate uh, is going to go all the way or not. And that was shown in 2016, when uh, Bernie Sanders struggled for some reason to connect with black voters. But Hillary Clinton did connect with them, I suspect because of her husband's popularity. And really, it was the African-American vote that helped to give Hillary Clinton the advantage and stop Bernie Sanders. How to Become President of the United States was written and presented by Dave Smith.
I hope you enjoyed listening.